Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 23 of the Fiduciary You podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to ask a quick favor. An easy way to support the show is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about 30 seconds and it helps promote awareness about the show. And I really appreciate it if you feel like this podcast has been valuable to you. So thanks so much. My guest today is Vince Morris, who is president of One Digital Retirement and Wealth. Vince is a rock star within the industry and building quite the platform at One Digital, which had led to 26 acquisitions since 2019 by the time that we had recorded the episode earlier this summer. On this latest episode, we had a wide-ranging conversation about the state of retirement industry trends. Vince and I discussed the origins of resources investment advisors as part of the Bukati companies and how they got into the aggregator business, the acquisition of the firm by One Digital, the M&A tear he and the One Digital team have been on over the past 12 to 18 months, what advisors should look for when considering an M&A partner, the convergence of health, wealth, and retirement, the importance of partnering with the right record keepers, and how managed accounts are enhancing the overall retirement experience for employees, among other things. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. Vince Morris, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. Thanks so much for being a guest today. Hey, thanks, Josh. Very happy to be here. Well, I'm excited about our conversation. We're going to touch on a number of different topics. You guys at One Digital have have just been on an absolute tear in terms of of assembling some of the best talent in the industry and and we'll talk a little bit about kind of what that what that looks like but you had been president of resources which really was an aggregator and you had some some really good firms well-known firms in the industry I think Kapoor Greenleaf was one of them I think Jason Chepnick down at Chepnick Financial was another and I think six or seven or maybe eight firms can you just talk a little bit about, you know, kind of pre-One Digital, where did you get the vision for building resources and, and how did that come about and, and what did that look like from your perspective? Yeah, just a quick background. I mean, I founded a practice in a local EB shop in Kansas City in 2001. From 2001 to 2008, we were at LPL. We were an OSJ mostly focused on just pure, we were purists on the retirement side, even though I'd come from the wealth background or wirehouse background. And in 2008, we joined NRP, National Retirement Partners with Bill Chetney's group. 2010, they were being bought by LPL. So we were going back to LPL. The landscape in the marketplace had changed. There was less broker-dealer related kind of revenue type stuff. And so I acquired a RIA at the time called Resource Investment Advisors. And they they were about 50% wealth, 50% retirement. And so we were looking to get larger in the wealth space. So we wanted infrastructure there. The RIA had been around since 1987. So we had a great track record. LPL was embracing the hybrid model where you could have your own RIA and, and clear broker-dealer related things through them. And so it just made sense to do that at the time. I never really intended to be an aggregator. That wasn't, it was a back office operational move for us. 
my practice continued to grow. We were very fortunate. We branched out into multiple cities. We had St. Louis, Denver, Kansas City, Austin. And so we continued to kind of build out the practice. In 2014, end of 2014, beginning of 2015, a couple of advisor teams, because of kind of consolidation that was happening in the marketplace and some of my competitors were doing M&A and others were aggregating as well, and had approached us and just said, hey, we would like to get scale through association. You, you've got a great practice. You've got a risk attorney on staff. You've got a CRM system. You've got a portfolio management team. All of those different things that, that they were hoping to get plug and play on. And we entertained the idea and said, yeah, I think we can support it. Resources, investment advisors to support in BKD basically as a brand, which was my practice. Why couldn't it do that to two or three or four more practices? And so that really launched us into that aggregator space, which I hate that word, but that's, for lack of a better term, what we call firms like ours. In 2019, we just, you know, we had had great growth. 2019, we finished the year at 72% revenue growth. So we actually had ended up aggregating about 32 different brands or teams, advisor teams across the country. So we had a nice footprint, about you know 250 to 300 total people, 180 of those were advisors. So it really just came together. And my superpower is really just finding great talent and surrounding myself with talent, which makes me look good. And I get to do an awesome podcast like this, but it really was having that centralized team that we pulled out of my practice that became home office type people, but they had had the background of either being advisors or being in the room with, with committee members and CFOs or sitting across the table in a wealth management meeting. All of those folks we pulled into the home office had that experience. So it truly was kind of that story of, of built by advisors for advisors. And we continued to innovate and, and just were very fortunate in the growth that we had on the, on the RIA side. That's great. So that brings us to 2019. And what prompted you to start looking out in the marketplace, whether it was to find a PE firm to put money in to continue to grow or, you know, ultimately, you know, finding one digital, like what was what was your thought process? You know, because obviously, multiples are kind of insane right now. And, yeah. and it's a really frothy market. And this consolidation is is hot and heavy. What were the kind of the thought processes for you? You know, you obviously had built with resources. You built something, you know, really, really successful at scale. Why did you think about, you know, going out to the marketplace? And, and what was the kind of thought process that you you followed when you were doing that and evaluating what your options were? Yeah, we were very much heads down trying to build the business. And in the in the backdrop of what was happening in 2019, was some really big players had had sold. I mean, people that I had known for a long time, I considered friends, and it did cause me to kind of look up and go, what is what am I missing here? Right. Like, you know, these are like Jim O'Shaughnessy at Sheridan Road and others across the landscape that were selling at the time. And I was like, I, I really don't understand what would prompt them to do that same thing. And we were certainly in a position where we we didn't have to sell. We were, as I said, we, you know, 2019 ended up being a 72% growth year for us. We were, you know, we were profitable. We were investing back into the business. We were still very successful. So that was kind of like, okay, well, what am I missing here? And then we had a couple of our advisors in our network approaches on succession options. And so that really for started to step for, for them, for them. Yes. 
And so, you know, they were looking for a transaction and, and honestly, they had seen the same thing, right? They, they saw some of their friends sell and, and some of these larger players sell in the marketplace. And so that really started us down a path of, okay, well, what do we do? What, it, what is our long-term plan here? And how do we finance that or fund that longer-term plan? And so we started looking around. We thought about self-funding and maybe doing, you know, an acquisition there out of our own capital. We looked at private equity partnerships, minority or majority stakes. And then we got into, I had always been a part of an employee benefits firm, even though I ran and and owned a separate entity, we were still very much branded together as the Bikini companies. And so I liked that story and was thinking about that on a national basis, what that would look like if we brought a 401k team to a, a national player. And so we looked at a lot of property casualty firms that also had the employee benefits and some had 401k, some didn't, and then got in touch to the one digital folks and really just kind of met them. And And they had hired McKinsey to do a study around their book of business and, and what the opportunity was for a cross-sell or what we prefer to call cross-solving people's problems on EB and, and retirement. And so having conversations with them, understanding their vision of how they wanted to go to the market with this convergent story of, of health and retirement. And just really loved the culture, loved the people, and started thinking about them as a, as a possible partner and what that would look like. And a couple of things that we really liked about them, one is they were large enough to really support us in the M&A activity. They had a full dedicated M&A team, they had a finance team, HR, marketing, IT, all the things that we would have really had to have built internally. And that would cause me a lot of brain damage to try to bring all that together. They already had it and they had done a hundred transactions in the marketplace. And at the same time, they didn't have retirement. So they needed a platform to come in and really be able to expand that offering to their 70,000 clients across the spectrum. And so what we did was bring our group then together, our larger kind of advisors there's probably about 13, 14 of those that we brought together and started having conversations what it would look like if we partnered with One Digital. And through that conversation, about nine of those firms said, hey, we would really like to, to go on this journey with you. And that really opened up the possibilities for us to immediately have a successful transaction with One Digital and then do subsequent transactions with those advisor groups over the, the next couple of weeks following that including my BKD team that was in Kansas City and Denver and, and other places. And so immediately out of the gate, we had a national footprint, you know, from a retirement and wealth side of the fence for one digital. So it's been really great since. I mean, right after that, we entered COVID. I'm not sure one digital was as happy with the, with the acquisition when the markets were down 35%. Right. Uh, we had some interesting dialogue around that point in time. But it was, you know, ultimately things settled down. We the markets returned to normal. We continued our our path of acquisitions, and now we've done up to twenty six acquisitions in just the retirement and wealth space. And so it's been, you know, it's been a really good run for us, a really good journey. Yeah, you guys have been on fire, just bringing together, you know, even over the past couple of months, David Griffin and his team at Atlanta Retirement Partners. David's a great guy and built a great firm. You brought them on board. Greg Fiore, I think also down in Atlanta with Clearview Advisory, another great team. And, you know, most recently, kind of a big announcement with Jania Stout, lives a couple of miles away from me, but her team with Fiduciary Plan Advisors. And and that was obviously a huge coup as well. Talk a little bit about those kind of deals and and, and what that means 
for you know one digital. I think if you look in the industry, and obviously there's been a lot of MA, I would say that Cap Trust historically, you know, had done an incredible job of if they were kind of, I think, had first mover advantage in terms of yeah. like really aggregating retirement. You know, it's interesting. I think their pace probably on the retirement side has slowed a bit, but has really ramped up on more of the wealth mm-hmm. on the wealth side. You've got other aggregators, Hub, obviously, you know, probably a big competitor in deals that was really active, you know, certainly, I think they continue, but definitely a couple of years ago, you've got Alera Group, which, you know, again, I think is that I'd probably put on par with with like a hub or with like a, you know, a one digital in terms of out of kind of the benefit space and adding PNC and so on and so forth. But you guys have just been, you've been on a tear. So what does that mean in terms of, you know, what does it mean for one digital? And maybe talk a little bit about like, with all that bringing 26, you know, teams on board, like what's been the positive, what's been the upside, what have been some of the challenges you were able to foresee were going to be challenges, or maybe some that as you got into it, that, that you set up, wasn't really kind of prepared for this. Yeah. And I love the fact you highlighted those folks. And, and I would think of our story or our vision, how we try to differentiate ourselves is we're very much building an operating company, right? We're not just a roll-up company. We have a very clear vision of how we're going to market, what our strategy is, and what our culture is, and believe that top talent mixed with or integrated with technology over the long run wins the game, right? So when you think of those individuals that you just mentioned, they're all very skilled. They're experts in their their field. They're they're industry recognized. They're industry advocates. You know, I I think of them as, as elite advisors. They're younger. They're going to be here for a long time. We're not buying just, you know, older people that are looking to to retire and move on out of the business. We're looking for people that we can we can grow, cultivate, and become leaders within our organization. More of a buy-in mentality instead of a buyout mentality. Exactly. That's perfect, Josh. So so very much, you know, looking not, I mean, we looked at more than 26 deals last year for sure, right? And some deals we outright passed on and some deals just were not a great fit with our vision and our culture and ended up going somewhere else. And we're very much an integrated story on how to bring folks in, get them integrated into not only technology and teams, but also into the culture and the vision. And if we can't do all four of those things, then you know it's probably not a good fit for us. And so we're not going to chase that deal or, or continue forward on that deal. So all of the folks that really have come together that's the unifying thing for us. And then all of the nuances that happen, you know, when do I transfer my brand or my email or tool suite, all of that stuff becomes irrelevant, right? Because we have alignment in what we're trying to accomplish from a mission standpoint and what we're trying to accomplish from, from this integration vision, story, and culture. Challenges wise, I mean, you know, COVID probably was, we would have thought of that as the initial challenge it actually probably was an accelerant. So if you think about like, normally I would hop on a plane and I would travel here or there. I'd do an hour meeting in New York to try to bring that team together and maybe meet a couple of of folks on on the other side of the fence on the EV side. All of that got accelerated with Zoom and Zoom-like meetings, right? So we went from, oh, I'm going to fly and have, you know, hit like three or four cities and, and talk to some people and try to get the teams incorporated. No, we just shuttled all of that when COVID happened. And now we can do 12 Zoom meetings today. (laughs) You know, everybody got who was normally a really good connector face-to-face 
became a really good connector on Zoom. And so I feel like that integration, culture, all of that stuff got accelerated through COVID. And then once even we got on the other side of it, it just became a normal operating habit for us. You know, the challenges are really around probably the nuances of the business, just like which tool suite should I use? What's what's the disruption to the client experience? How fast can we spin stuff up and get get people kind of integrated into you know our CRM system, our investment philosophy platform? Because we want to centralize certain certain components of that. But really, those have probably been the the biggest challenges. And in the grand scheme of things, it's just nuances or it's really irrelevant longer term. Definitely solvable. You know, those yeah. are kind of the. Too often, I think people, even in our business, like they kind of major in the minors instead of like majoring the majors and, you know, not don't yeah. major in the, in the minors. So, yeah, absolutely. There's a number of, I think, you know, innovative things. You guys are really, I would say, probably out of everybody I see in the marketplace, you are the ones that are really pushing the convergence story of health and wealth and retirement. Talk a little bit about that and that vision and how are you seeing the convergence really take place? Because it's been talked about for a long time. And I would say like a lot of things in our industry, they get talked about and then it takes a while to kind of gain traction. But when you guys think about health and wealth and retirement and the convergence of those, like what what comes to mind? What kind of story are you, you know, trying to kind of tell to the marketplace and how's it being received overall by clients? You're absolutely right. We're not the only firm in the country that's that's got EB retirement and wealth, right? We have a lot of major competitors that that are in that space. I think how we are are thinking about it in terms of a, a go-to market is breaking down the silos historically that have, have you know resonated between those two. And just to give you an example on the retirement to wealth, right? Because that's that's clearly in our space. We still run across retirement advisors that are purists, right? We don't want to do anything at the participant level, or if we do it at the participant level, it's education only. We're, you know, a wealth is a conflict to our business model. And I would say that that that's just a different approach for us. We're more embracing as to, you know, we're advising you on an accumulation phase. That accumulation phase, why should it only be relevant to your retirement plan? Why is the accumulation phase not relevant to an outside Roth or a 529 plan or other assets that you have to get a full picture? And then on the flip side of that, on retirement, like readiness and and deaccumulation phase. So I've worked at this company 20 years and I've had them as a client for 20 years and built, built up their account balances of 401k. And now at the most critical time of their decision-making where they're turning off one income stream, turning on another income stream, and oh, by the way, have the whole emotional roller coaster of going through a retirement and trying to figure out social security and anything else that they have to do from an estate planning standpoint, I'm going to say, no, as a fiduciary on the plan, I'm not going to help you. I know I've been vetted by the company and I've helped you get to this point, but now I'm going to turn you over to the wolves and you can go to you know any insurance broker, you know, who knows, and you're going to have to seek advice elsewhere and good luck. I mean, to me, that's the foreign concept, like to embrace us and say, we have a connectivity here between not only owning retirement and the wealth side. And to me, both of those together is really about financial independence. 
Because when we go out and we talk to people about what retirement looks like to them, there's a broad spectrum of answers that come back. And the majority of it isn't retirement like our parents or the last generation had, where you work for a company for 30 years and, and retire and you, you know, maybe go off and travel for a while and then you just sit at home, I guess, you know, whatever that is. But the new retirement, if you talk to the millennials, retiring and really getting out of the workforce 100% isn't the majority of them. They see and envision a new retirement where they're, they're either working in the community, they're working in some capacity, maybe in their current role, or they're going out on their own in a gig economy type thing and doing something else that, you know, maybe they've stepped back and don't have the stress of, of the job that they had before, but they're, they're completely engaged in, you know, staying active. And that's a whole new paradigm. And so when we think of terms of retirement, it's not just retirement. It's really about financial independence, giving people the power to make decisions around their life at all points of their life, their kids, their future as to whether they move to this state or that state. I mean, anything that they want to kind of like do and consider, retirement is just one component of that overall financial picture. So I think all of these things are related. Healthcare is the same way. We talked about it a little bit at the beginning. We have this, this vision that you can't have great health care and control health care costs if you don't have great financial stability within your employee base. Because that financial instability causes people to eat poorly, causes higher anxiety, depression. You're twice as likely to have a heart attack if you're under financial stress. We know all of these things that financial stress impacts direct health care costs. And we also know that there is, you're going to lose productivity when you have credit card companies calling you at work. And, you know, think about a truck driver driving down the road, right? They're, they're sleep deprived because they're in debt. They don't know what's going to happen if they're going to have, get their house foreclosed on. They got credit card people calling them. So now they're sleep deprived driving down, <laughs> down the road, right? That's never a good situation. And we could go into thousands of different situations where we know that when you have financial stress in your life, that you're going to have higher healthcare costs. And what we're trying to prove out with our vision is it is worth the company's time, energy, and money to invest back into its people to make sure that they have great financial well-being. There'll be an ROI back to that company. And you know the, the tough thing with wellness, because I want to talk about that for a little bit, what you, know, you mentioned. And again, getting back to financial wellness is like aggregator, right? I mean, it's, it encompasses a lot of different things. But that ROI is always, and I think this is probably a, you know, a, a struggle. Like, how do you quantify that ROI? Because I always think of it as it's more of a soft ROI. It's hard to, you know, CFOs want to be able to measure like what's the what's the quantifiable hard ROI. It's tough to do that with wellness. So how are you when you're trying to get them to kind of invest in, let's say, wellness? How are you making that case to them, or how you, how are you trying to quantify what the kind of the real world impact is for the business? Or are you not even trying to fight that battle because it's too hard to quantify? No, I think that it, there is a quantifiable. Look, it's kind of like, we all know that high turnover costs a company money, right? And you can quantify that to some extent. Like you can go and say, well, how long does it take someone to, to for us to invest in training? Or to, to how many recruiters do we have to have you know, to, to bring people on, but it's still a very, it's still somewhat squishy, right? We, we think, Hey, it takes them three months to get ramped up. We're going to discount, you know, their salary for three months and, and things like that. 
we can do kind of the same thing around wellness. And we, we can take a look and look at payroll data and go, okay, here's the benchmark of that position, right? Or benchmark of a, let's say a manufacturing firm of what they on average pay their people and benchmark against their, that payroll. Then we can take a look at their 401k and say, here's, here's a benchmark of that 401k in the marketplace. And if that benchmark is low relative to, to the client that we're talking about, and then we can take a look at their healthcare costs. So we know all three of those components. If their payroll is low and their 401k benefits are low and their healthcare costs are high, we can start to see trends. So it's really actually pulling large sets of data together to look across the organization and the industries to go, is there a correlation, a direct correlation between healthcare costs and financial situations that are occurring? And then as you do that analysis, you can dive deeper down into the individual company level and start to formulate that. That pulled in with a bunch of, of data that we get from, you know, Aon and, and Price Waters and all, all these other players that are coming in and going, here's the survey data and here's what we're, we're seeing in the marketplace. I think Franklin Templeton just did a great study with the American worker around financial independence and what what retirement, what the new retirement looks like, but they're, they're looking at the same thing. Here's what healthcare costs are doing. If you don't have great financial stress relievers or financial well-being within right. an organization. So right. how do you see, you know, you guys had built at resources, what I thought was a really kind of cool wellness offering. I think it was called financial elements. Yeah. Very, very catchy. You know, I'm assuming that's still part of kind of the, the deliverable or the offering that you guys provide from an implementation standpoint. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I love the name financial elements. I mean, it's really breaking down, you know, financial matters on an elemental basis. And we have financial mentors that be in a call center that that provide advice, point in time advice to participants. They can connect with them. They can, you know, do a calendar set up right there through our tech stack. They can chat with them online. So so it's a very robust platform with Spanish speaking, English speaking folks. And again, it's behavioral finance stuff shows us that people don't always do what's in their best interest, right? But we also know that 83% of, of employees wanted financial advice through, through their employer. Mm-hmm. And so what, what we see as a key function is we are supporting that relationship anytime an employee needs it. And we don't know when that's going to be. We don't know if it's a student, you know, entry-level position coming out of college that has student loan debt and needs some advice and help with what does consolidation mean or should I take care, do it through this consolidator versus that consolidator, right? Or what the financial impact is long-term, or maybe it's setting up 529 plans because we just, you know, had kids and, you know, obviously if we start early, that's better, you know, like most things. And, and even the Roth, like we still go out to a lot of retirement plans and you get two, three, four, five 5% adoption in Roth, right? right? that's not a representation of the tax code today. I mean, 42% of people don't pay any income tax. Well, that means 42% of people, no brainer should be doing Roth, right? Absolutely. Right. So, so it's just, it's working through all of those different types of things to really optimize that retirement, which ultimately what we're doing again is talking a broader base and talking around that financial independence. So that leads me into kind of my, you know, next question and to get your perspective on it, because my theory is this, is, you know, you've got 
you know, advisors like and firms like what you're doing at One Digital and kind of staffing up and building that out. Most of the large record keepers are hot and heavy around wellness. You know, you saw Empower pay a billion dollars for personal capital, right? You know, I think I read an article recently that Fidelity was going to staff up like a thousand CFPs. Vanguard, you know, is is pushing hard, you know, on wellness and on advice. And, you know, my theory outside of call it Vanguard, you know, the past 10 or 15 years, the push from active to passive management, away from revenue sharing, away from proprietary products, you know, that really was the reason why a lot of these large asset managers built record keeping platforms is because they were a great distribution mechanism. But you've seen a lot of that enterprise revenue go down for these large record keepers. And they've really, with the rise of the independent advisor, have kind of been pushed out of that direct, maybe first seat relationship with plan sponsors. And my theory is that that they are playing the long game, that they view wellness because it's a hot topic right now as a way to kind of get back, back in the game. Being able to offer advisory services is a way for them to do it in a much more sticky fashion than what just kind of pure asset management was in the day. Yep. What's your take on that? What's your take on if you're getting a lot of these these record keepers that are that are throwing this stuff in and they've got, you know, obviously they're spending a ton of money on tech and and participant experience, they're big competitors for RIAs. So what's your take on kind of that that how that's taking place within the industry? And why do you think plant sponsors at some point they may be able to get the services for less, let's say, from a record keeper? What's your take on how the industry's shaken out as far as that goes and 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 how do advisors potentially not necessarily work in competition, but is there a way for advisors to work in collaboration in some way, shape, or form with these large record keepers that are are competing on the wellness side, or is it really kind of two sides of the table? Yeah. I mean, that's a great point of view in the industry. And I think a great read on what's happening. And it'll be interesting to see over the next five to 10 years how this all plays out. You know, personally, I I think that, I think advisors do have to partner with the right record keepers. I mean, they have to understand who is a direct competitor and who's not, and who's, who is playing that long game to, to, to circumvent them in the marketplace. And I also think that as you see the rise of larger RIAs that are retirement focused, there'll be carve outs probably for those RIAs. So in that case, scale matters, right? Where a record keeper will say, you know what, like we offer wellness, but because of the block of clients that you oversee for us, we're not going to, if you're offering, you know, wellness and advice and wealth, yep, we're not going to fish in that pond for your client base. Correct. Yeah. Okay. I mean, advisor managed accounts are what I, I refer to as AMA which rolls up under our financial elements and wellness solution is a way, a very innovative way, in my opinion, on how we manage participant money within the plan, right? So we have a partnership with multiple kind of software vendors like a Morningstar that has pipes into record keepers. And we're now allowed to offer a really great client experience. Ultimately, all of this stuff is about the client experience, about the employee engagement, right? Mm -hmm. And we can come in and have a unified experience where a participant can click on a button like personalized portfolios is what we call ours, but where it becomes our experience, right? They sign our IMA, 
we're the intellectual capital behind how we manage that money inside of the retirement plan. But that also allows us to build a relationship with the participant, right? So when they need drawdown or social security help, we're going to be there. If they need pre-tax versus Roth to answer that question, we're there. They're getting our quarterly market commentary or news updates. We're making changes and managing them the money on a discretionary basis for them. So all of that type of stuff allows us to build a relationship so that it opens opportunities on the wealth side of the space. That is definitely in competition with certain record keepers, right? And certain record keepers that are very advisor friendly that may offer that component are willing to, you know, understand our long-term goals in the marketplace and and that what that client experience is on our systems versus theirs. So there's very much this competitive kind of alliance thing being built, but there are there are some frenemies. You guys are frenemies. Frenemies, frenemies. That's the that's the term I was looking for. Yeah, so like there are certain companies that that'll never happen, right? We're we're going to be walled off from. There's certain that will we're okay going head to head. Hey, you offer your service, we'll offer our service. Just don't block us from offering our service, right? May the best best entity win, kind of thing. And then there are some that are totally in the trenches with us, saying we are so advisor friendly that we don't even want to have our solution in there. We will totally have your solution, and and that's it. So. I think it's a large space. Look, there's trillions and trillions of dollars over the next you know, couple of decades that are going to change hands here. And there's going to be a lot of opportunity to, to be able to do that. Where I see the most impact, Josh, is really in the wealth space. If I am building a relationship with the entry-level position over the course of their lifespan and able to offer a lot of services to them and, and build that relationship, it's going to be much harder for a traditional wealth advisor who doesn't have lead generation to move and in and and over and take that account later. That's why you're seeing such high multiples on like financial engines that now is like really moving to to acquiring RIAs and they've already got all of this this mass input and a huge pond to fish in and they're they're figured out the the lead generation on the well side. That's similar to us you're seeing Cap Trust do it, right? That's why they're acquiring well space. Yeah. I mean Margins are higher and, and, and things like that. There's other reasons, but it's definitely the story of I've got a million participants, right? A lot of them are eager for financial advice. How do I deliver that in a really tech-savvy, efficient manner so that I'm building relationships and getting engagement? The other thing that we saw with managed accounts is I think a lot of people thought of, of it as a disengaged participant. We see that in the target dates, but in the managed account solution, we actually see a lot higher engagement. They're actually using the financial advisors. They're using the tech stack. They're going through and and uploading other accounts and things like that. So we get a holistic picture. So there is a lot more engagement that comes from that platform too. Do you see within, and I want to get back to the the RA point that you made, because I have actually a similar, kind of a similar read on things. But before we kind of get there, where do you, like, do you see it? Do you see... Fund lineups as kind of a binary either or you either have target date funds or you either have managed accounts or do you see it as more of a call it a kind of a smart tiering where, you know, for people to totally want to do it all by themselves, they've got asset class funds they can do it with for, you know, certain people, a target date fund is going to be a better approach. And for others, you know, do you, do you, do you guys build lineups that include kind of all of these or do you make around managed account or, or or TDF, is it one or the other? 
No, I would say it's in con- conjunction with each other. I mean, I still think that there is a subset of, of a group that that can totally use just the target dates. And again, we, we rely on our financial elements team to help provide a certain level of guidance at that point in time, right? So they don't really need discretionary, you know, asset management. Like if you're just starting in a retirement plan, you're putting $100 a month away. Right. Paying for that discretionary management is probably not going to help you, right? Not help we just want to, make, yeah, we just want to make sure you have access to advice, right? So if you have student loans or you're doing that first-time home purchase or whatever the the point-in-time advice needs to be, now you've got access to it through our financial elements desk. So I I think that there's a clear component there for target dates to be still in the lineup and and still part of the equation. Yeah. So it really comes down to helping plan sponsors kind of segment and understand their employee population. Yeah, absolutely. And in what point in time do they really want that advice and what does that advice look like? And right. and that's a great thing. I mean, it's all custom tailored, right? So so everything else in our life is custom, right? I can I can set up, you know, my iPhone to deliver me certain things that I want to see. It's customized and personalized to me. Why shouldn't our our financial advice and our 401ks be the same way? Yeah. I think the big challenge on the, at least from a managed accounts perspective, and I'm glad you, you brought this topic up because I think, you know, a lot of advisors, you know, they're looking at historically, especially if you have people who are not as engaged, you know, they're, they're, they're essentially paying retail when they could get kind of a wholesale price with the target date fund. You start to see people be more engaged. They're going to get more, they have more assets. They've got more elements, if you will, to their financial picture, they're going to potentially see see more value from that standpoint. You know, the one thing I just see that's challenging right now is, is there enough choice in the managed account space yet from a tech stack perspective? You mentioned Morningstar, you've got Empower with, you know, kind of their AMA platform, you know, Fidelity, I think with strategic advisors, like they have their own their own managed account solution. You know, you've got Stadium, Todd Lacey kind of running the, the show on, on growth over there. Who's a good buddy of mine. I know you know as well. Yep. But is there enough choice to this point to really be able to make kind of a prudent decision on what is the best managed account solution? Or is it, hey, we think this is an important tool. We're going to make do with kind of the, you know, the options we currently currently have, limited though they may be. Yeah, it's a good point. And and some of our advisors have asked that too. Like, how do we, you know, if we were going to do an RFP on a record keeper, right? I got 50 choices or 100 choices or how many I want to bring to the table. And so, you know. That number's declining. Yeah. That declining. Yes. And it's still amazing that we still find more, it seems like, to put a plan with or somehow we get a plan on. So, but yeah, in the managed account, even, even just not even say an AMA, but just managed account world, it's pretty pretty small universe. I mean, Next Capital's in there too. And then every, not every record keeper, but a lot of record keepers have their own proprietary solution, right? So so I think how we've positioned it is, again, kind of almost to that wealth component. When we go in front of a plan sponsor, we're saying, we're about the people side of the business. We're helping, we're going to empower your employees so that you accelerate growth in your com- your own company, right? And by empowering your employees, we're going to we're gonna engage them on the, the health and wellness. We're going to engage them on the financial wellness. And we're going to take care of them. And one of the ways we take care of them is through a managed account offering and our wealth management services. And so we believe in our ability to deliver that in a superior fashion with a superior client experience than our competitors, right? And so 
we're not necessarily going in and, and RFPing and, and looking at the landscape and going, we're going to come in as a consultant and pick the best AMA for you. And by the way, ours is in the hunt. It's very much a tr- more transparent conversation with the plan sponsor around that saying, we believe, we know what's out there. We know you could hire financial engines or AAG at, at Empower on their proprietary platform. We believe ours is superior and here's why, right? Now it's up to the plan sponsor to determine whether or not they want to go down that path. But I think that we have demonstrated our capability. We we just hit a billion dollars of assets under management in our AMA solution. And we just launched in April of 2019. So within the first two years, we got a billion dollars of assets rolled into it. So I think that we have a superior offering and positioning in the marketplace of how we frame that out and how we can help all employees, not just your, you know, not just the C-suite, right? We're not focused on just the C-suite. Now we do have that capability. We acquired Fulcrum last year, which is one of the country's largest non-qual providers or consultants and, and advisors in the marketplace. But we're really trying to help everyone from that entry-level position all the way to the C-suite. Got it. And I noticed, I think or I, I read, I think somewhere that you guys just put about $70 million or so with build asset management. We did. Yeah, that's another key component, I think, Josh, that differentiates us in the marketplace. We're not just doing a managed account where we're overlaying into the core lineup. We have a very unique process that we go through that allows our AMA structure to be creative and innovative in how we manage the money as if you were bringing money to us as a wealth management client. So kind of creating different sleeves. If yes. You yeah, that are not represented in the core lineup. And because we're the 338 on it, then we have discretionary control over those assets. We're responsible for the decisions that we make in that portfolio, just as if you were a wealth client. If you brought me a million dollars and I put it on Schwab's platform today, it would have stocks, it had ETFs, it'd have all kinds of different things and vehicles and certain sectors and asset classes. All of those type of things that I would never put into a 401k plan right. are probably you know relevant in the high net worth space. So now what we've been able to do is bring that from the high net worth space down to every American worker that's in one of our retirement plans. And so then how do you do that just from a, a tech and an interface and on the kind of the back end, how do you do that? Yeah, there's a lot of partners and a lot of working parts, and we spend a, a lot of brain brain power internally making sure that you know the PM team's on top of that. But again, it comes back to having record keepers that are willing to partner or see us as a as a good partner in the marketplace that is willing to spend the time and energy to allow us the right tech solutions to be able to to integrate that process into their record keeping platform. Okay. You know, I, I, I want to get back to one of the things you were saying. I think it is interesting. I, I actually, in getting back to kind of RIAs and, and kind of pure wealth RIAs and whatnot, you've seen a lot of them. Obviously, markets have gone up. It's been an incredible run. They, they, a lot of RIAs, quite frankly, just are not very good at marketing, right? They kind of, you know, very kind of referral driven and they're not great on the outbound side. And, you know, they get kind of the lift from the AUM over time. I do think a lot of RIAs are, are, you know, and and really good wealth RIAs don't see the writing on the wall. They don't understand the 401k space. They don't understand that, you know, right now they want to be in the position when, right, there's a rollover, right? There's money in motion and somebody retires and they roll their money out. I don't think a lot of RIAs see the fact that like they may not be getting those at-bats in the future, 
because there are going to be more resources or there is, there's advice that's that people have been getting used to with kind of an advisor managed account, let's say, within the plan. Mm-hmm. And you may, may get more participants who just say, hey, there is no money to roll over. A lot of large plan sponsors are trying to do more to keep assets post-severance in the plan. I don't think a lot of RIAs, they have no idea what's happening in the retirement space. And, you know, I think they're they're kind of like just, you know, humming along and, you know, what's worked in the past, they think is going to work in the future. But I think it could be, I think it could be very different in the future, just based on the capabilities being built out in the the 401k side. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, and, you know, just like you're seeing a rise on the, on the retirement focused RIAs, you're seeing that on the well side too, right? There's just a lot more like our universe of, of who are really great quality retirement teams are, is smaller. Small, than, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, we make headlines every time someone kind of sells on the, on the retirement side, but there's thousands and thousands of firms on the well side. So, but every, every component to me is driven by lead generation it is how do I, how do I remove obstacles of growth? So HR, marketing, IT, all the brain damage stuff, get right. it off my plate onto someone else's. And how do I refocus my team on the client facing client experience and the, the opportunity to grow And lead generation to me is a large part of that. I mean, look, I'm located in Kansas city. I've got creative planning one side of me, Mariner on the other I'm in a building in between the two, both have done exceptionally well in the, in the, in the wealth management space. You know, creatives had a partnership with TD, you know, for 20 years. I think they just bought iron mountain too, or iron financial, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, at 338. Their, their first big push into the retirement side acquisition. Yep. Yeah, and, and you saw Sarity, I think what I think it was Sarity bought Blue Prairie a few years back. I mean, it's it's definitely the bigger shops are looking at this going, there is definitely a convergence here, right? There, there, there is is a way to enhance our wealth offering if we have retirement and vice versa. For yeah. us, it's a hey, you know, we got five billion on wealth today. We want to go to 10. We want to go to 20, you know, you'll continue to see that grow. And so all of that story is convergence. It's though, how do you do it? Right. And even financial engines now is buying RIAs, right? They're buying bricks and mortar RIAs across the country because they know they've got this lead generation machine or, or potentially have this lead generation machine that, that could be a feeder. But you're absolutely right. How do the traditional small, smaller RIA? or advisor even working for someone else goes to the country club, you know, goes out to dinner, volunteers at community places, somehow has to build relationships to do that same lead generation. We build relationships by 10,000 people at a time, right? So it's, it is an interesting marketplace for how that's going to play out over the next five to 10 years. So here's a question, obviously you probably have some some bias in this, but do you think there will be an opportunity? Can you still build, can you still stay independent? Can you build a retire, a, you know, a good retirement practice or a good wealth practice without being aligned? I, mean, I have my opinions, but, but, but without being kind of aligned or partnered up with, you know, one of the big boys, whether it be you or a cap trust or a hub or a financial engines, are those days gone? Can you still be a, a retirement focused shop? or an independent firm and succeed? 
Yeah, I, I, I think you can, Josh. I mean, I'd like to answer the other way, <laughs> but but I, I do think you can, especially in the smaller end of the market, right? Like if you if you've got 30, 40 relationships and you know you got a great team and and you're a knowledge knowledge player in the space, you're gonna probably be fine. If you're if you're trying to build to a five million dollar shop and now you've got producers and you've got you're managing a whole lot more operation and you're up market and you're really trying, you know, beyond just relationships, these are these are committees, right, with CFOs and people that are really tasked with overseeing the plans, mm-hmm. it's gonna be much harder for you because it's just, you know, we spend and reinvest so much back into technology and so much back into the experience. And it's just going to be a, a much tougher battle if you're in that mid-market, I think. That's where I see the people getting squeezed over, over the next five years is that yeah. the alignment is, is going to be a lot more challenging there. But again, if you're that smaller end of the market, either wealth or retirement, to me, you're probably going to be just, just fine. I don't know that that optimizes your career path, but you know, I think joining a larger team for us you know, we have equity. Most teams that join us take equity in our, our firm. So they still have a, a wealth creation standpoint. They still have significant uh, control over their P&L. And, and so they have a significant role and responsibility and they still have unlimited upside on income. Yeah. So, so for us, we, that's why we're getting the, the talented type leadership quality people coming in because it's not, it's not like, oh my gosh, I got to like, you know, be a whole different person or entity. It's no, you're, you're doing, the same thing you're building, you're just now on a, on a team as opposed to trying to go it alone. Got it. And and how would you define that mid-market? Would, would you say, you know, kind of the 20 and over space, the 10 and over space, the 50 and over space? Yeah, I mean, I think it probably starts to, to be a little different at 2 million and up. I mean, I, I think at 2 million and up, you're really starting now to really have to coordinate with team, with a team, whole team of environment. It's not, it's too much production to just do it yourself, right? Two million. What do you mean? Two million in revenue for the firm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two million in revenue for the f- firm. So even back when we were doing aggregation, we really looked at that two million and up revenue mark because that's when you had a business owner. There was some success. There was some. We could see growth drivers. That person was generally more worried about compliance because they didn't want it to impact their business. Mm-hmm. You know, they understood. You know, hiring people, firing people, all those different components. That to me, once you get into that space. You're really now wearing a business hat, not just an advisor hat. Right. You've moved to more of a business and not just a a practice, if you will. Yeah. When you talked about lower end of the market for advisory firms in terms of like plan size, where would you define, how would you define the threshold mid kind of mid market? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, it's probably a couple hundred people. You know, I don't know if it's an asset threshold as much, but Really, if I see an advisor that's got relationships in the marketplace, it's usually local business, mm-hmm. you know, owners. Sure, you can have a relationship with a CFO and, and that type, but once you get into a you know a five hundred person plus company, a lot of times that's more formal HR, more formal right. accounting team, you know, yep. more formal oversight of the plan. So just a golf buddy's not going to be able to really, you know, control the relationship. It's going to have to be someone that can really deliver capabilities. And when you start comparing capabilities of, you know, the four largest retirement shops in the country from the four smallest, there's a huge capability gap right there. And so that's where I think that the small producer or the producer that's just dabbling in this space is really going to get hurt over a long period of time because they're just not going to have access to the tools. 
right? How have you seen the client experience just in terms of with COVID and remote? Like, how do you think, and we talked about like how the, you know, kind of Zoom and COVID helped accelerate the kind of M&A process for you. What are you guys seeing as more companies are starting to kind of at least open back up and, and you know, some faster than others, but how do you see the kind of client service experience? Do you see it going back to four in-person committee meetings, you know, a year, or do you see, are you finding that plan sponsors are open to saying, Hey, let's do more kind of remote or virtually like, how's that impacting the client experience? Yeah. I mean, I think each client is different, but I would say trend wise, we're seeing less in-person meetings. I mean, Look, we go into a company and we got, you know, seven people sitting around a board room. It's costing them more than it's costing us. It's expensive. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and I think part of what is happening from our perspective is let's let's re-envision the the dynamic there, right? Like we go in with a 150-page deck, we sit around a boardroom, we tell them the same thing we just told them last quarter. And so what can we do that's more impactful? from a business strategy or business consulting standpoint, let's put on that hat and not just go through the 401k motion. And I think if we can do that and even maybe, you know, do some whiteboarding around goals and and what we're trying to accomplish and, and make it a little bit more interactive and then walk away with our team, then doing, doing some action items, Mm -hmm. that would be much more impactful than just doing the quarterly meetings. Yeah. So, so, but to your point, yeah, I think we're, we're going on the larger end of the market a lot more to an annual face-to-face and we'll do, you know, if we're doing quarterly or a couple times a year, do those remotely. Yeah. Yeah. One of the questions I like to ask just about every guest at the end is, you know, what would be the single most important piece of advice you would give planned fiduciaries? On the planned fiduciary side of things? I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's hire great people. It's it's hire people that that will advise you. Listen to the advice. You know, have a firm understanding what it, what it is you're trying to accomplish. I still have a lot of clients today that just have a 401k plan that check the box, and it costs them a lot of money. They they're taking on liability that costs them a lot of money. Ultimately, I would say, really truly understand how the how the 401k or 403b or whatever the retirement plan is fits into helping your people with financial independence and then getting really good advice uh, and people that have can give you that advice around you to accomplish those goals. So I'm coming at it from an EB convergence, like this health, wealth, and retirement convergence perspective. But to me, that's we have case study after case study where we've gone into companies and saved them a million dollars or whatever and, and got them to understand culturally what their firm represents and why they should reinvest that back into the retirement plan. Well said, well said. Well, Vince, it's been a really fun discussion today. I've enjoyed it. I think you've provided awesome insights. Listeners of this podcast are going to get a lot out of it. So I just, uh, I really appreciate it. Where can people go to stay up to date or connect with you with what you guys are doing at one digital? I'll put all this stuff in the show notes, but how do people stay connected with you? Yeah. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So that's that's tends to be kind of a catch-all. I get a ton of interaction there. So look me up on my LinkedIn page. It's probably the, the easiest way. And we're constantly putting information out there about the firm and and what we're doing and and hiring and and who's new and coming on board. So feel free to to connect with me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thanks, Vince. It's been a good time. 
Excellent. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, Josh. Great conversation today. Really love what you're doing in the marketplace and and your background is perfect for it. So you you get all this, you you know, you know you've been a really successful advisor and so super excited to see your success here. Appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Vince Morris from One Digital. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, and free tools. And make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcast. It's the best way for others to find the show and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. Podcast.